Welcome to the 8th episode of the Outback Cast. And if you remember, last week I said it was the 8th episode of the Outback Cast. But it wasn't. It was the 7th. This is definitely the 8th. I'm Steve Cuff. Joining me as always, I have Sean Glynis. Hello. And joining us via telephone, because there's little children playing Minecraft and sucking up all the bandwidth, we have Adam Myros. Sure is a wonderful morning. <laughs> and sitting across from me all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota... Live in the studio, Ooh. the one, the only, Stephen Coleman. Hello. Steve, I'm pissed off at Minneapolis. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because your cultural that? ambassadors, the replacements, are ruining my life. Those bastards. Playing a small, shitty venue, their, their concert sells out, and then I've got a, a third of the tickets. A third of the overall tickets that are sold are being scalped right now on the Internet. Smart business. Yeah. Paul Westerberg, I know you're listening. If you could just forward me a press pass, that would be great. Water under the bridge. I might say a nice thing or two about you. I know you guys could use some press probably, so <laughs> might as well be from us. <laughs> Anyways, this week we're going to talk about uh, an article that we have coming out next week. Uh, and we're going to be writing about kids' movies. And this kind of fits into our discussion that we've been having for the past couple of episodes where we've been talking about nostalgia and stuff. So we've been kind of thinking about what makes a good kids' movie. What specifically... Uh, appeals to not only children but also to us as adults and what kind of things have stuck with us as we've gotten old and gray and disgusting and flabby. Mm, especially what, flabby. Especially flabby. What, what, what kind of children's movies stick with us? So, Sean, what, what makes a good kid's movie? Yeah, um, one thing that I always look for um, in a movie is how they construct conflict. So, um, how they bring in conflict to the movie, whether it comes about naturally, uh, whether it doesn't exist at all, or uh, whether it's sort of super contrived. Um, unfortunately, a lot of kids' movies, they throw in conflict for, for lack of um, an idea of... Like, they come up with a concept. So uh, there's something that... Actually, I want to write about um, sometime, and saying it on air will, will make me actually do it. Um, but, Listeners uh, will hold you accountable. Yeah, exactly. So uh, within Pixar, um, they started with this amazing like concept with Toy Story, where there are these kids or there are these toys that are like inanimate objects, and um, the bad guy is like a kid who, um, you know, is defacing toys. It's not because he hates the toys; it's just what he does as a type of kid. Mm -hmm. um, and then generally, like they just have to e exist in this world that doesn't care about them. Like you know, they have to get around and this pizza shop and, you know, uh, cars that are going to run them over and stuff like that. Uh, so that's, like, the conflict. Um, and then as it goes along, um, and as Pixar came along um, into more, a, a bigger audience and, and more projects and stuff like that, like a movie like Up, um, it starts with a likewise very original and, and beautiful concept, um, of this couple, you know, dying in the first 10 minutes. And then uh, these two people going on a, an adventure uh, together. Uh, and it's it's just... <laughs> you got a duck in there with you? <laughs> what was That's, that? Uh, oh, guys, I forgot to tell you. Special guest, 
this week only, and God, you don't even know the strings I had to pull to get this, but Howard the Duck is here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're rebooting it. If you, if you watch the uh, after credit sequence in Guardians of the Galaxy, you'll know that Howard the Duck is, in fact, back. He's out of retirement, and we've got him here today. Okay. <laughs> How timely. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, but... <laughs> Up, uh, yeah. So basically, it's about these these this, these two guys who are in a, you know, going on this adventure, and it's a joy to watch them explore and stuff. But then that's not enough. They have to bring in this stupid old guy who uh, I don't know. He just has no place in the movie and completely changes the tone. And he's a bad guy, and he has a bone to pick with them for some mm-hmm. reason or whatever. Um, and it, it just comes off as very lazy, whereas if the movie would have just ended in this congenial fashion about these these two people bonding or or whatever would happen uh, as they're exploring, you know, the the elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the one of the things that I look for um, is uh, how that's how how conflict is being rendered. Uh, one of my favorites. I didn't choose to write about it for our feature, but uh, one of my favorites is um, my neighbor Totoro, um, a Studio Ghibli movie, which um, it. It doesn't even have a, a, a bad guy. Um, you know, they go into the dark forest, but it's not creepy. They meet, like, these amazing creatures that are just friendly and, and I don't know. So, I don't know. I, I, I look for – I like kids' movies that don't always have to be such, like, a, opposing forces. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that it seems like a lot of studios, a lot of movies, they, they lean on that just because it's so simple and so easy – for kids just to just to swallow a, a basic conflict like that, good guy against a bad guy. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's the other side of it, too, if, if I want to get really cynical here, and, uh, you know, you you got to sell your lunchboxes and your action figures and everything like that. So uh. It's always good to have more characters. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up Toy Story, because the movie that I'm going to be writing about is The Brave Little Toaster, which is sort of proto-Toy Story in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm specifically writing about a scene towards the beginning where an air conditioning unit played by uh, Phil Hartman <laughs> impersonating Jack Nicholson kills himself. He just kills himself for <laughs> little five-year-old me. <laughs> and it's weird because when, when you see, when you see death and stuff, uh, death and stuff. Wow. I'm very articulate. Today. When you see <laughs> death and conflict in a children's movie, it's, it's all very cut and dry. If a good guy dies, it's because, you know, he was defending something good or he dies so he can elevate another character. So, like, you know, the Lion King, Simba's dad dies because he's, he's defending his son and then that allows, the, you know, Simba to grow into our protagonist. Uh, in this movie, it doesn't treat death that way. Uh, the air conditioning dies for literally no reason at all. Uh, he, he sort of acts as a little bit of an audience surrogate if you're a parent or an older person watching <laughs> this. <laughs> Not because it's so bad that you just want to you know, kill yourself, uh, but because the whole plot of the movie is there's these mundane household objects. There's a blanket, a radio, a toaster, and a vacuum cleaner, and they're sitting around in this summer home, and they're waiting for their master to come back. And their master isn't the mom or the, or the dad or whoever owns this, this cottage. It's their young son, who at the time was like five years old, and this is like 15 years after the fact. I think in in the movie he's getting ready to go away to college or something. So the air conditioning basically says, nobody gives a shit about you. You're out-of-date appliances. Why would a kid care about you? No one's coming back to get you. You don't matter anymore. And and that's basically it. So in Toy Story, the, the, the child, Andy, he still has his nostalgic 
kind of connection to his toys even as he gets older. But, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I never had a nostalgic attachment to my toaster. So the air conditioning is completely right. And then he gets very frustrated and he overheats and he, and he blows the fuck up and it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Um, but it's, there, it is, it is interesting to see a movie treat death that way. Sure. Isn't there also like a really scary like um, scene where they go to like a junkyard? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, that, 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 movie, uh, that movie creeps me out still. Yeah, the, the junkyard scene is weird, too, because the, uh, the the master or whatever, he's getting away to go to college, and the whole reason that he ends up getting his stuff back is because he needs shit for his dorm room, so he's going to go grab these old things. Um, but it, it's kind of a weird, contrived connection that they try to make where it's just like, oh, he really does care about these things. It's like, I don't think he does. He really doesn't. They're just they're useful to him in that moment. Otherwise, he never would have thought about them. And that's that's it. They're just, they have utility. That's their only purpose that they serve for him. But yeah, there's this scene at the junkyard where, you know, they're about to get smashed by a crusher and he, he rescues them from the crusher. At that point, I would probably just go to Walmart and get myself a new toaster. But, you know, sometimes you got to rescue a vintage <laughs> toaster from a junkyard. Uh, yeah, so Myra's- basically, Toy Story, like, took the, took the same thing but uh, made it more sense in terms of kids have a connection to their toys. Yeah, I mean, they fleshed out the narrative. They cleaned it up a little bit. When when Brave Little Toaster originally came out, it was independently, you know, created. Disney bought the rights years later. But they kind of had a little bit of wiggle room, so it's rough around the edges, but at least they're able to sort of explore a little bit more in the ways of, you know, mature themes going on here. But they never really dive deep into it either. But it's it's there. It's there. It's just a little bit under the surface. Speaking of terrifying children's movies, Maros, you're writing about E.T., Aren't you? I am. I am. I uh, yeah. Obviously, we all we all are aware of E.T. Spielberg. Yeah. It's kind of a classic slice of Americana. It, it really was like one of the first studio efforts geared towards children. Kind of set up that whole wave in the eighties. Mm-hmm, but sure. uh, it also belongs to the eighties in the way that uh, there was a, there was a shitload of uh, terrifying children's movies in the eighties. They all had this like dark line through them, which. I think you can kind of trace back to Spielberg and, and yeah. Joe Dante and those guys. And, uh, yeah, E.T. is a movie that uh, made more of an impact on me than just about any other. It, it straight up destroyed me. It wrecked my <laughs> life for, like, two years. It sticks with you, man. Many sleepless nights. Uh, my parents thought they were doing me this favor. Oh, here's a family-friendly, warm, fuzzy film. And, uh, and the end result was, uh, yeah, I... I was terrified of aliens. I, I, I'm almost still somewhat terrified of aliens. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, it's a real testament to Spielberg, too, because if you, if you watch them, there's no reason to be afraid of E.T. He's a pretty nice guy, you know? He's just he's a standard botanist alien, just, you know, trying to get home. Uh, but the way that the movie's shot and, and certain scenes in it, especially when he's, like, running through the cornfield and things like that, the way Spielberg shoots it, it looks like a horror movie. And... The fact that he's able to kind of like tease that out um, and, and still terrify children, even with something that's incredibly pleasant to watch, uh, it's you know it really speaks to his talent. Yeah, that that cornfield scene where Elliot discovers E.T. is straight out of a, a horror film. It's uh, really effective. Uh, maybe obviously that's what he intended. I, I'm not sure why, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, something about the design of E.T. and everything. I mean, obviously he. As an adult, he's, he's cute and cuddly, but as a child, it's like, 
it's just something otherworldly about him that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, and I, I heard this on another podcast, but I guess when after Spielberg made Jaws, uh, and then he, and he made Close Encounters, and he wanted to make another Alien movie, but like a like a horror themed Alien movie, and that project oh. kind of fell apart. So. What he ended up doing was he made E.T., the children's movie, and he used, like, one of the alien, like, prototype things to kind of build E.T., essentially. And that became E.T., and then the horror elements of the, the movie that he was trying to create became um, uh, Poltergeist. Oh. So, well, have, you, have you ever seen any of the concept art for that? It's, it's pretty terrifying. No, I've, I've never seen the concept art. I should probably check that out. Yeah, they have a lot of it online. It's, it's pretty awful. <laughs> Uh, Steve, what are you writing about? I'm writing about The Witches from 1990. What the hell is that? I've never even heard of that before. It's uh, based on the Roald Dahl book, Witches. And uh, it stars Angelica Houston, uh, Rowan Atkinson of uh, Mr. Bean fame. Mr. Bean? Yeah. It's actually my personal introduction to the works of Rowan Atkinson. I always knew him <laughs> as the uh, snooty hotel manager. So it was a rat race, right? No, it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Check that off my bucket list. Referencing rat race in a conversation. Them and Smash Mouth. <laughs> um, but it's um, it's also Jim Henson's final production before he passed away. Oh wow! I think I even be- I believe he may have actually died before production was even finished on the film. But he's in charge of all the puppeteering because there's two. So there's this kid who goes to a seaside hotel in the British countryside with his ailing grandmother. And they happen to be staying at the hotel the same time that there's this convention of witches, like international witches convention. Oh, I didn't know they, and they had conventions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they uh, plot to murder all of the children in the world. <laughs> and uh, their idea is to open candy stores, and they will poison all the kids. Jesus! But the poison doesn't kill the kids. It turns them into mice. Oh, and they're at a hotel, and she turns two kids into mice, so the mice are just, like, running around, but they're, like, animatronic mice. They talk to each other, um, and they uh, basically plot to destroy the witches at the hotel. And uh, That sounds completely terrifying. Yeah. How is yeah. how is this a kid's movie? <laughs> it's, it sounds vaguely like uh, Halloween 3. Also, the... Uh, Main character, this kid named Luke, he becomes an orphan within the first five minutes of the film. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Parents get in the car accident. You don't see the car accident. That happens off screen, but. Uh... <laughs> and it's uh, it's directed by Nick Rogue, right? Of, yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, I forgot to mention that. Wow, you guys all. Shortly after that movie, he did. Yeah. Bad timing. Yeah, something? we we all chose like absolutely terrifying movies. I don't. But that's yeah. the only thing that sticks with me. Like I know that the first movie I ever saw in the theater was uh, DuckTales the movie, okay? <laughs> I know that because my, my dad has told me this, and I know I've seen it, but I have no recollection of seeing it at all, and I couldn't tell you a single plot point from it. Huh. In nothing. Yeah. But at the same time... I have a similar that, experience. I think mine was Lane Before Time, and I, I don't know anything about that movie. Yeah, that was mine too, actually. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I, yeah, and I, I can't tell you shit about it, and I'm sure it was absolutely pleasant, and uh, I'm sure I loved it as a kid because I loved DuckTales, but the thing that sticks with me is just renting Brave Little Toaster and trying to, like, wrestle with why the air conditioning killed himself, other than he was kind of a dick <laughs> that didn't seem like a good reason to die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dick. I'm just going to kill myself. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> that's um, 
<laughs> opposed to uh, your guys' frightening uh, choices um, and nostalgic choices, I chose one that um, is the opposite uh, in Ratatouille, um, mm. which is like completely like affable, um, and which is why I love it. Uh, but it also uh, kind of like some of your guys is it, it explores these pretty like mature mature ideas for kids movies. Um, it's about this rat who you know grew up in the sewer having to like steal his food and uh, he realizes he has this talent um, for fine cooking um, in Paris. So uh, it's it's it overtly talks about like where artists can come from and things like that um, mm. but and, and in that way too it's also very much like a Woody Allen movie and in just tone um, which is a really weird thing so I, I wrote about this in my thing but watching it I, I was just like am, am I watching a Woody Allen cartoon that's not ants <laughs> um, but but yeah you, yeah you don't happen to mention the uh, Key and Peel sketch in your uh, piece do you Oh, no, I forgot about it. <laughs> That's all I've been thinking about for the last two minutes, and I can't stop laughing. cooking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know what you mean when you say it's like a Woody Allen movie. I mean, there's that part where he starts dating that, uh, that like, six-year-old rat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just having all these, like, you know, these, these big intellectual conversations with her, and then things don't work out. And... <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> All right, moving. Uh, speaking, of kids movies, uh, speaking of kids, Ratty Hall, we were going to talk about um, we were going to talk about heavyweights, which horrible. came out heavyweights. Heavyweights, yeah, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's the the twentieth anniversary of heavyweights, which is ridiculous. A seminal film in my growing up. Yeah, I uh, I had the plastic clamshell VHS. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, and, and importantly, uh, it opened up third behind. Brady Bunch and Just Cause, um, the thriller of it, the thriller taking place in Florida with Lawrence Fishburne. But uh, Ooh, all three Larry of those Fish. movies, yeah, all three of those movies usurped uh, Billy Madison from the number one spot. Oh, well, that fits in very nicely with last week's conversation, then, huh? Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, I guess why would they go head to head with Brady Bunch? That that movie was huge. I don't know why they would do that. That's kind of weird. Well, I guess because you know it's it's heavyweights. So they just kind of toss it out there. Heavyweights is super, super underrated, and, mm-hmm. I, you know, watching it now, it still holds up really well, like, even without nostalgia glasses on. You can show that to someone, and they'll still get a kick out of it, but it's crazy, because if you if you look at, like, Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, it's not, it's not looking so great. I think it's got, like, a 6 on IMDb, which is pretty bog standard, but uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it's got, like, 25% or something on the tomato meter. Like, it, nobody, nobody got it. None of the critics got it. They're like... Well, it's just like Mighty Ducks and The Big Green and every other Disney live-action movie, which in a lot of ways it is, but there's so much talent there, mm-hmm. uh, specifically with Ben Stiller's character, that you, you can't... It, it's totally on a different level. Yeah, I have, a, I have a fun quote from the New York Times original review about Ben Stiller. Uh, it says, Ben Stiller gives a hyperkinetic performance that is only a twitch or two lower in spasmodic frenzy than Jim Carrey during one of his seizures. Oh, wow. <laughs> but you can tell, um, like, you know, you, you know that Ben Stiller is like, like, you know he knows what he's doing, especially, especially with the intertextuality between this and Dodgeball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, his Dodgeball character is basically, just Tony Perkis from Heavyweights with a Mustache. There's no difference at all. 
What were you going to say, Steve? I was just say it's interesting that he wasn't even billed um, in the promotion for the film. Um, mm-hmm. He was not like on any of the posters or anything. It's not like heavyweight starring Ben Stiller. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really buried in the promotion, at least at the, at the time. Um, yeah, later releases of it, like on DVD and Blu-ray, they actually had to Photoshop Ben Stiller onto the cover, like the movie poster cover. Onto the uh, hot dog <laughs> Yeah, they're so, all carrying. So, and this is how you know Ben Stiller's really hit the big time. So, uh, There's a character named Lars. He's one of the camp counselors, and the original movie poster is Lars inside of like a giant hot dog or... Yeah, OG or something like that. With all the fixins on it. Yeah, too. with all the fixins. It's like a big ass Subway sandwich or some party sub. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Now that my internet's been. Yeah, there you go. Bars and the Subway sub. Yeah, and uh, then all the kids from the camp are like holding it up, and then Lars is there and just says heavyweights above it. Uh, then after that, when the DVD came out, they photoshopped Ben Stiller's head onto Lars's body. In the hot in the hot dog bun or whatever. <laughs> it makes sense to Photoshop a five eight man's body onto a six foot two man. Exactly, it makes perfect sense. And then and then for the Blu-ray re-release, they removed the Photoshop Ben Stiller from the sandwich, left Lars in the sandwich, and then they photoshopped in a gigantic Ben Stiller right next to the sandwich. It looks ridiculous. It, it's <laughs> it's like the big the biggest hack job I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's how you know he's a star. And yeah, I mean, it makes sense they didn't bill him as being part of the movie when it came out because uh, I think the Ben Stiller show had just been canceled when they started shooting Heavyweights. Uh, he wasn't a, a big name. He was in Reality Bites, though. Oh, he was in Reality Bites. That's true. That's still true. very indie. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that was like super mainstream, especially if you're marketing to a, a younger yeah. audience. He was still an art house actor. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you say that too, because he really he went like method on this shit. He like <laughs> hit the gym for four months, and he is absolutely jacked. I jacked. thought he was wearing a bodysuit. No, oh no, that's that's and all it, Ben not, Stiller, man. But yeah, it's it's impressive. Yeah, it's uh, he's looking good, and and the character is great. It's uh, it's iconic, man. You you can't you can't deny it. And then he the fact that he drew from that character to do his you know dodgeball character and a little bit of his Starsky and Hutch character too, and Uncle Tony always comes out in things when he, uh, whenever he has to do an over-the-top rule. Another another thing that um, that that early New York Times review talked about it. Uh, I don't know if you guys find this to be true, but um, he said it's really two movies in one. One being the comedic spoof of the the fitness magnate, and then the other part is just like poking fun at the chubby kids doing goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we can maybe talk about whether you guys think that those two mesh together or not? Um, well, um, I mean, I agree with it to some extent. There's definitely, I think, um, you know, with Ben Stiller's Tony Perkins character, there's definitely uh, them wanting to sort of poke fun at that sort of culture, that celebrity um, workout instructor. Yeah, which is commercial. Which is, if you think about it, yeah, kind of like a, what's that guy's name? Tony Little or Body by Jake. Oh, yeah, Body by Jake. All that stuff that was really popular in the late 80s, early 90s infomercials. Sure, sure. Um, I will say, though, that as a chubby kid myself in 1995, <laughs> that uh, the characters definitely spoke to me. And there's, uh, I don't know if it's so much, they're not so much pointing or making fun, I think. Right. Overweight children as much as they're trying to empower them. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very Judd Apatow thing. Yeah, which we should probably mention that too. Written by Judd Apatow and produced by Judd Apatow. Mm-hmm. Fresh off his Larry Sanders stint. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree with you, Steve. I mean, 
there's there's silly like you know fat kid with chocolate smeared on his face jokes, but the movie it, it doesn't it doesn't go out of its way to be mean to kids just because they're overweight like that's that's not the whole point. Mm. Um, and there's even that great scene about halfway through way through the movie where it's like the uh, the apocalypse now scene where they've taken the kids have taken over the camp and then there's just like classical music playing and they're they're like naked and dancing around a fire and just like smearing pizza and marshmallow sauce all over themselves. And that's like their big celebration because they finally got rid of Tony. And then they wake up the next day and there's this moment where they're like, this is fucking stupid. What are we doing? Like, yeah, this, this isn't what this movie is. This isn't what we're about, you know. They're actually hung over. Yeah, they're, they're hung over. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's very conscious of, of the fact that it, it doesn't it doesn't want to just make the easy fat kid jokes. That's that's not what it's about. Uh, and the fact that Judd Apatow wrote it is interesting too because Apatow is really great at making movies where he uses like an an ensemble cast and even if there's a clear protagonist or whatever, uh, each character kind of finds their way to sort of shine the movie. And Heavyweights is a great example of that. Uh, it's this I mean it's the story of the kid Jerry. It's Jerry's story. But at the same time, there's probably a half dozen at least kids that each have their own very specific, well thought out personalities, and they're funny. Uh, each of the the camp counselors are great. Lars is fucking hilarious, um, and then of course you know Tony Perkis. So, uh, Apatow maybe better than a lot of his newer movies develops characters great. Oh yeah, I, uh, uh, I would definitely agree with that. It's something I tend to forget about. Actually. Even like Keenan Thompson's character, like they all have. Oh, whoa! What's going on here? Some heavy breathing. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it's um, that's one thing I do tend to forget about the movies: how every character has its a very distinct personality. It's mm-hmm. not a, it's not contrived. It's just um, yeah, very well done. Also, yeah, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Sean. Um, I I was gonna say I agree too, um, or or I disagree that that it's sort of these two movies in one. Uh, from my memory, it meshes pretty well. Yeah. Uh, but but it made me think about how like one of the co- that is one of the common pitfalls of kids movies um, is how compartmentalized they are, or at least like especially non animated ones, like for for slightly older kids. Mm-hmm. Um, like they start in full of energy with all of the gags and like uh, the concept that they have, and then they like slow it slowly loses its energy and turns turns a corner into, like, a serious drama about morals and facing conflict, like, something like Cop and a Half or, like, Beethoven does this, like, all the time. Is that more of, like, a 90s oh, thing? Yeah, you know, I, yeah. it's it's hard to say because I think most of my viewing of live-action children's movies occurred in the, in the 90s. I mean, it's not like I'm running out to see fucking... Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Shark Dude and Lava Lady, or what? what is that? Shark Boy <laughs> and Lava Girl. Girl. Lava Girl. Yeah. In 3D. In 3D, yeah. <laughs> So I, yeah. it's it's really hard to say, but right. I, I I don't see it as two movies either. I always thought of it as it's basically a prison break movie with children, and then there's the, the side to that is just letting Ben Stiller go apeshit, and it's well great. yeah, it's, fantastic. it's funny you, it's funny you say prison break because oftentimes summer camp is like prison break. Yeah, basically. I mean <laughs> that's what it is. It's your parents don't want to deal with you, so they're like, yeah, go. Fucking swim in a lake for two weeks, so we don't have to be around you. <laughs> this is gonna be fun. It is never fun. Summer camp has never been fun, no. not once. It's always horrible. 
Myros, what do you think? What do you got? I I guess I have a bit of a unique relationship with this movie. I I didn't watch it when it came out. I I probably didn't see it. I think one of my high school friends uh, was like, hey, you've never seen Heavyweights? We're going to watch Heavyweights. And, uh, yeah, (laughs) it was something I probably saw around, like, age 17, something like that, like, well after its release. And as I was a chubby kid, I, I turned into a chubby man. (laughs) <laughs> uh, like Stephen you blossomed. Cole, you didn't I, just I, turn. You blossomed. Yeah, I like Stephen Coleman. I didn't abandon the cause. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyhow, I I don't have nostalgic love for this movie, but I have love for this movie. It, and as a fat man, I I do tend to focus on on insensitivity in that respect to a degree. Not not necessarily intentionally, but you know. That joke can rub me the wrong way, and right. this movie—this movie's not insensitive. It's—it's it's, uh, really well done as far as that respect, and not to mention that it's really funny. Uh, but I mean, you know, like Tom Gowan's character is uh, really—he's—it's uh, he's well fleshed out. It's a good representation of the uh, bad adult as well as you know, a lot of other things. I mean, it's—it's it's a good movie. So, I. I um, so can we can we say that this trumps uh, um, Ernest Goes to Camp and Bushwhacked for best summer camp movie? I would and Camp Nowhere for that matter. Oh, oh yeah. God! <laughs> yeah, Camp Nowhere. I think I saw that in the drive-in. I, I think I think this is the uh, this is the apex of summer camp movies as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I do have I have do have one quick story here about heavyweights. Um, Myros mentioned that he didn't see it until he was a little bit older, and I actually watched it more when I was in college than I did as a kid. Because we live with this guy Zach, and it was it, it's like his favorite movie of all time. So he would constantly, constantly watch it. <laughs> and the best part about it was we didn't no, nobody actually owned it on DVD. We had a friend who, in like 2006 or something, uh, burned us a copy of the DVD. <laughs> but instead of giving it to us in like a plain DVD case or like a CD case or something, he took. A, a porno DVD case, <laughs> and he put heavyweights in it, and then he gave it to us. So then, you know, people would come over, and they'd be like, oh, you know, let's you want to hang out and watch a movie? Like, yeah, let's watch heavyweights and drink and blah, blah, blah. And then we have to take, you know, like, fucking come Master 9000 off the shelf and <laughs> pop it open and watch heavyweights. <laughs> so that was fun. It was always a good talking point. It's like, oh, you guys have a lot of movies, and one porn. <laughs> no, it's actually a kids movie. It's not a porn. not that kind of kids movie. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Sean. I know you you gotta you gotta take off in a little bit, but let's kind of switch gears here and talk a little bit about uh, the SNL 40th anniversary extravaganza. Uh, mm. All 12 hours of it. <laughs> it's seriously, it was like a yeah. Jerry Lewis telethon, man. Uh, I, I didn't watch it because I value my time, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't have that kind of time to dedicate to SNL. But Same. I watched clips of it. Steve, I think you probably watched the most of it. Yeah, and even then, I really kind of just skipped over a lot of it. Um, I immediately was sort of irritated within the first five minutes of it just being this very self-congratulatory celebration of mm-hmm. all these celebrities saying how great it's been. And uh, the opening sequence had Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake doing a song and dance number, 
where all they did was just reference sketches from the last 40 years. Jesus for laughs. Christ. And immediately I was just like, this is not worth it. Not worth your time. Yeah, seriously. Um, and Jimmy, I know you're listening. Fuck Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> right. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do, he doesn't do comedy. He just, he, he has famous friends and, then references things. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you remember he, Saved he, by the Bell? Do you remember he, stuff? <laughs> he assimilates himself with stuff that is super likable so that people will, will just like him and attach themselves onto him. It's really annoying. Mm-hmm. And, his, and his personality is so like, oh, I'm just, I'm just friendly and aloof and uh, I just like the same things you do. And he's, It's almost like he's on his knees just begging us not to hate him and then <laughs> trying to run down a, a list of things that we like. The best you can say about Jimmy Fallon now is that he has a crew of writers that aren't out of touch, as opposed to like Jay Leno. Yeah, right. right. So he has that going for him. But Um, I mean, is is he is he he's almost the exact opposite in terms of why he's horrible. So Jay Leno was way out of touch and just an old asshole, basically. (laughs) Jimmy Fallon is Mr. Nice Guy, but his comedy—it's again, you can't even call it comedy. He's just. He's like the human embodiment of an upworthy list. And the only reason <laughs> that he has this job, by the way, is that his film career just never took off. Yeah. Right. He was a, he's a failed actor. Mm-hmm. He did not capitalize on his success in Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. probably because he wasn't even that good on the show. Anyway, he was just the guy who always broke character and laughed during every single sketch. Yeah. So and he's a terrible performer. People hate him. Tracy Morgan like has flat out said like that Jimmy Fallon. He got so pissed off at Jimmy Fallon that Jimmy would just like super stone face it whenever he did a sketch with Tracy Morgan because he was afraid Tracy would just like break character when Jimmy started laughing and just like pumble the shit out of him, which I can understand. <laughs> oh yeah, the desire to do cool. that. So uh, since we're talking about Jimmy Fallon in this way, um, maybe we should talk about uh, former cast members in general in terms of like where it's left them. Oh God, Dan Aykroyd, poor guy. <laughs> Yeah, that was really sad, and that's the other thing with the uh, anniversary, because he comes out with, uh, well, Jim Belushi to do a Blues Brothers thing for, like, 30 seconds, and Mm -hmm. you can't even tell the difference between Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi, which is, like, you know, Dan Aykroyd used to be, like, the skinny Elwood Blues, which, by the way, sorry, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here, I don't know if I ever understood the joke of Blues Brothers. And it's like the go-to thing for like a lot of baby boomers is like, oh, nothing was funnier than Blues Brothers. Can somebody help me out here and tell me why I'm not, what I'm not getting? What am I missing? Uh, I'm not I, a, I don't, I'm I don't know. <laughs> like they're supposed to be bad, but they're actually really good. Is that supposed to be funny? Yeah, I, I, uh, I liked his work in Soul Man a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie is pretty great, but yeah, what's the central? Joke. I, I I guess the the joke of the characters is kind of lost on me too. Not, not it's made for quite a good movie. But, uh, yeah, the, and I agree. The movie is is good, but I find myself enjoying things in the movie that have nothing to do with the titular Blues Brothers, like the mm-hmm. scene where John Candy, as the sheriff or the detective, is asking if everybody wants an orange whip. That's one of my favorite lines of any movie. Yeah. But yeah, I. That it boggles my mind. I don't know if it's just like a generation sort of thing, mm-hmm. and you know, taking the Blues Brothers too, and just thinking about like that entire first five season stretch that is seen as just the template to what Saturday Night Live should be, and how people immediately just forget about how important the next few years were with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, well, and Blues Brothers, 
the movie, the reason why it works, and it's one of the few SNL movies that does really work well, is because it it doesn't get bogged down in just being about the characters. Like, right. It's this giant celebration of like American music, and I think that's yeah. why uh, dads across America love it so much because mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, I, I I used to like those songs, and now there's silly people that I enjoy, and they're, yeah. they're playing harmonica, and, you know. Amen. Got that car chase, man. It does have that oh, really yeah. good tr- car chase. Yeah, the, the car chase is on point. Um, but yeah, I, God, Dan Aykroyd is a sad son of a bitch. He he put out. Myros and I sat through this a few oh. years ago. He put out a documentary about space aliens, <laughs> which sounds great on paper. Like I want to hear Dan Aykroyd talking about aliens. Like that's got to be hilarious. But the entire movie, it looks like it's shot on an iPhone, and it's just Dan Aykroyd, who at this point. Is just a bloated corpse of a man. He looks like he ate Jim Belushi. <laughs> and he's just sitting there just like mumbling about aliens and, and men in black and, and the greys and just going on and on. And then Did there's this ominous music playing in the background the whole time. Did he have too much of his skull vodka? Which <laughs> is actually quite tasty for a vodka. What a, what a renaissance, man. What a soul, man. He really is. <laughs> I mean, can we talk, I, I, we're getting on a Dan Aykroyd tangent here. I, I feel like we could say, oh, poor Dan Aykroyd, but without SNL, Dan Aykroyd is like a homeless man uh, <laughs> babbling on the street. <laughs> you mean Coneheads doesn't get made? And I will yeah. say Coneheads yeah, is... Nothing but trouble is going to be a big studio temple. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's got that penis nose, and it's got Tupac. It's Tupac and a penis nose. Why did they just call it that? If you come out with a movie that's called Tupac and a Penis Nose, and it's just Dan Aykroyd and Tupac going, hey, and just shrugging, I'd see that. That Fandango would crash with all the uh, print. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who wouldn't buy a ticket to that? That's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, to tie this Rest back, in peace, Taylor Negron, by the way. Oh, R.I.P. <laughs> to tie this back to Saturday Night Live somehow, um, and, and cast members when they leave the show... Uh, at least in current days, so like people like Bill Hader and Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. One one of the things that really pisses me off, and maybe it's just because I've, I mean, I was a very short time like fan of SNL. Like I, I, a friend and I like tried to archive them on VHS for a while, but I could never stay up for the whole thing. Um, but anyway, um, I I really can't stand like when they do the publicity circuit, whether it's about leaving or or future projects like. Bill Hader leaving after eight years and then making uh, really mediocre indie comedies. Uh, mm-hmm. They always go on like you know like WTF or I don't know wherever and do publicity interviews things like that. Sure, sure. And it's always the same inane questions about like what is Lauren really like? What was your audition really like? <laughs> yeah, I it's, it, this God. It's yeah. It's almost more annoying when they leave. Yeah. Uh, just because yeah, but the press chunkets are just it's it's unlistenable. Also, based on the the bits of the SNL 40th anniversary show that I saw, apparently Lauren Michaels is just like Doctor Evil because mm-hmm. on the uh, the Wayne's World sketch that they did, they did an impersonation of of Lauren Michaels. Uh, both Mike Myers and uh, Dana Carvey did one, and they both were just. It sounded like they're both just doing Doctor Evil. Yeah, well, he has said that the Doctor Evil character, at least the voice, is based off of Lauren Michaels. Oh, yeah, I heard um, that. Makes sense then, I guess. Uh, but there are few people I want to know less about than Lauren Michaels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. 
yeah, I mean, there's there wasn't really. I, I watched a few clips, but there was a lot of things where I started watching and I just I just turned it off. Like I just I don't give a shit. You're just rehashing things, but in a way that's so much worse than it was when you originally did it, and it's it's not worth doing. And I think the big question is too, if you think about when SNL started and what SNL was all about, and over the years what SNL has represented, is this the way to celebrate Saturday Night Live? Is this it? Just no. a big jerk-off session with a bunch of old guys? I mean, I feel like the original, at least first five-season run, um, had that counterculture vibe to it, and it was supposed to be something that wasn't like what we saw or what some of us saw mm-hmm. a couple nights ago, just this like celebrity jerk-off session with everybody in tuxedos and just rehashing the good old days. Yeah. Um, so it's a little sad. <laughs> it is. It was, like, that's kind of how I got That's what I got from it, too. Especially the Eddie Murphy bit where Chris Rock comes out and gives yeah. this amazing, amazing speech about how important Eddie Murphy was to SNL. And then Eddie comes out and he's just like, um... Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's Thank like you. Being in high school again. Yeah. And to Eddie Murphy's credit, though, I mean, it was nice to see him there. Uh, but I think he's never looked back. Whereas, like everybody else who's been on that show, has always like had to come back and like show up and like make it sort of like pay their dues, but also relive the glory days. Whereas he has always just been very distant from it. And I've always kind of admired that. So in some ways, it was nice to see him there, but in other ways, it's like I wish he would have just stayed away. Yeah. Um, and he is, I think, the definitive voice of Saturday Night Live. People can talk about the not ready for primetime players, but that whole era where it was just him, uh, and Chris Rock mentions in his intro that he's the first cast member to host the show while he was still a cast member. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, that importance of him, I mean, Saturday Night Live obviously wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him, but everybody gives Lorne Michaels so much for credit for keeping the ship running for the past 30 years, when really, it's Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair no, enough. It wouldn't have survived the 80s without Eddie Murphy. That's for sure. No, do, I, do I, guys, I don't think it would have lasted. Do you guys have a personal favorite uh, cast member from uh, the 40 years? Ooh. Horatio Sands! No. <laughs> I do definitively. Uh, but I, mine is Norm Macdonald. I, I'm a oh, Norm okay. Macdonald super fan. Yeah, I Norm's, Norm's a good choice. Yeah. yeah, I also his Bob Dole like that that Bob Dole real world sketch probably kills me. <laughs> oh <that>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Coleman? I um, that's a really tough. I can't believe I didn't think about that before coming in today. But I would maybe go. With current cast members right now, um, I really like uh, Kyle Mooney and Beck Bennett sort of yeah. as this unit creating these insane – it's not like the digital shorts that Andy Sandberg did, but they always kind of get that mm-hmm. 10 to 1 slot. And I think, like, if they're given more reign to really run the show – Saturday Night Live could turn out to be an amazing, almost like experimental type comedy program. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that'll ever really happen, but – I mean, I've never laughed harder at Saturday Night Live except for when those two guys are involved. And that's, like, after years of watching it, too. So I have a lot of hope for those guys, and, yeah, I'd put them as my favorite. Yeah. My choice is pretty stock, Will Ferrell. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. like, the the era that I, I watched the most. And uh, when they had the, the reruns on Comedy Central, you know, that's that's the stuff that I would I'd sit around and watch. And, I, I mean, that's... Yeah. And I know yeah. that's a really boring answer, but no, I um, yeah. I I think I uh, first where my mind went was Bill Hader, 
but uh, but that's partially because I always felt bad about him not getting the amount of time that he deserved. But um, definitely, I think it's Will Ferrell for me too. Like, not only was he a riot when he was on, but when he comes back to 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 host it, like you can just tell how like you can tell how good he is at the format, like how much better mm-hmm. he is than we're used to. Um, just he knows how to act act the way like like um he knows where to like put his face like when he's talking to certain people in terms of like to make the audience like to convey these jokes like he just knows how to do it a lot better than most people well i think barrel and hater both kind of benefit from that eddie murphy scenario where they were they were kind of on not the strongest cast like yeah. uh, i don't know like that barrel era is really where the show kind of lost me because I can't tolerate Fallon or uh, Chris Catan or any of You don't like Corky Romano? Mango? <laughs> so you don't want any of his cookies? <laughs> I'll pass. I should also, um, now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, uh, Phil Hartman. Oh, yeah. Phil oh, Hartman. And uh, Jan Hooks, too. Uh, I'm probably thinking about her more just because she recently passed away, but I think she was a very underrated cast member. Yeah, see, that's my that's my cast right there. That that early to mid nineties, like I love Hartman and Dana Carvey. Those would probably be my two, three behind Norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's I mean that's so that's nobody's the a, nobody's a um, far, or did you just say Farley? I didn't say Farley. I don't think he was ever like a standout on the cast. I love Chris Farley, but he was always, right. Yeah, but, I, I agree. Yeah. He was I sort agree. of a force on his own. I think even outside of the show. But um, you knew what you were getting every time. Yeah, same with Sandler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sandler, Sandler is not a sketch comedy guy. That's for sure. I don't think he's in anything, guy. What is Adam Sandler? I he's think Happy Gilmore. That's about it. My favorite, my favorite host over the over the years has probably been Jim Carrey, though. Huh? For whatever reason, I don't know. You're just a I big comedy fan. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know who my favorite host would be. That's a tough question too. I, again, it's going back to the Will Ferrell era. That's <laughs> right. I always wish that Gary Shandling would have hosted more than once. <laughs> For all you '80s babies out there, <laughs> do you belong to like the Gary Shandling uh, fan club or something? Uh, yeah. I'm yeah, the, the only uh, member. President, only member. We're just too bad. President, vice president, <laughs> secretary, treasurer. You're, you're curating Great. the Facebook page. <laughs> Academy for the Underrated Gary Shandling is going to happen soon. That'll really drive traffic for that. <laughs> so, Steve, is the Gary Shandling show worth watching? I mean, Larry Sanders is obviously amazing. Yeah, Larry Sanders, I mean, obviously is one of the best television shows of the last 25 years. Um, it's Gary Shandling show is definitely worth watching. I don't know if I'd put it on the same pedestal as Larry Sanders show, but it's um, still very good. He's very, uh, it's a very subversive show, a lot of meta references and I think at the especially at the time it was a very unique show. Uh, definitely worth seeking out. Alright. Uh, Sean, I know you gotta get going. So uh, because you have like a real job that pays money. Yeah, I'll let you guys talk about uh old filthy shades of gray. <laughs> hey look at that singer, this guy. You got a career in stand up ahead of you. Sean before you go, what are you putting over? Oh, um I will put over uh, an episode of Pete Holmes's uh, podcast from November 14th. Um, 
I think that's the date. Uh, it's guest Harris Whittles. Um, just in light of his passing this week, um, speaking of comedy writing and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, he's a writer for Parks and Rec, and he's been on Comedy Bang Bang and um, stuff like that. He the the episode of, of with, with Harris Whittles is uh, him detailing uh, very conversationally um, his drug addiction um, or his his battle with rehab and stuff like that. And it's mm-hmm. um, like, if you, even if you don't know anything about Harris Whittles, it's just a really, really mesmerizing um, discussion. So that. All right. Check it out. Right. Sean, thanks for joining us. I'll see you guys later. We'll see ya. Hi, Sean. Yep. All right, good. Now that he's gone, we can talk shit about him. Oh, wait, yeah. he's here. Now he's gone. Okay. Now we can talk shit about him. Uh, no, we're not going to talk shit about Sean. We're going to talk shit about a new release yeah, movie. We're going to talk about E.L. James. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk shit about. Uh, so, Fifty Shades of Grey made superhero money this weekend, this yeah. past weekend. Something like $90, $95 million, which is insane for, uh, you know, a hard R erotica film. And Erotica, in quotes. Yeah, erotica in, in hard R. Yeah, hard R. <laughs> Extra hard. <laughs> Oh my turgid. god! It's turgid R. Yeah, turgid. Just, just it's an it's an engorged R. Just, <laughs> just engorged and throbbing R. Okay, enough of that. I will say this: if I had to sum up my experience seeing Fifty Shades of Grey, it would be: I wish I would have paid money to see Hot Tub Time Machine Two instead. And Fifty Shades of Grey might be the only movie. That I would actually say that for, which is, I think, really saying something. Uh, Myros, I'm the one who pestered you into going to see it. How much do you hate me, and what was your experience like? <laughs> I, I got a whole bullet point uh, list here on this movie, but man, I, I really hate you. It, <laughs> I, I read the book. I, I, I read the book. I'm the only one here who's read the book, I believe. But you did. You uh, read the book. And you just told the entire world that you did, so that's good. Badge of honor. Yes, I'm very proud of that fact. Uh, anyway, I uh, it it was it was so boring. Like I, I didn't expect that. I mean, I expected it to be crap. Uh, but you know, Steve Cobb says, "Oh no, you should go see it. it it's, uh, it's it's worth seeing. It's entertaining." No, no, it's not. <laughs> Yeah, I, had, I had fun. I had fun. Yes, it's boring. Uh, there was one part where I got up to use the restroom, and I was uh, I was walking in the bathroom, and I checked my phone real quick because I was like, "Oh, I bet it's almost over. I don't want to miss the end in case there's a you know something something good happens here." Because Lord knows nothing good had happened at that point, and it, I, it was literally an hour in, and I was like, "Oh my god, it feels like I've been sitting in the theater for three hours. Oof. This is insane. It just has the worst pacing. It's it is a master class." in how to not pace your movie. It is horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And yeah. but I, I, I still I still had some fun though. I still had some fun. And here's why. I went on opening weekend and almost everyone in the theater came in expecting like they were with dates or with their, their girlfriends or whatever and they were expecting this, you know, hot, steamy, whatever movie. And it was evident about ten minutes in that that's not what they were going to be getting. 
So the entire theater was laughing hysterically, <laughs> and it was so much fun. And it was even better because everyone in the theater was laughing except for the row of, of uh, girls. There was like five college girls in front of us who were pissed. They were so pissed at everybody that was laughing. So every time like I would crack a joke or the audience would start laughing at some asinine, like sexy line, um, they would just like turn around and just stare. And it was it was amazing. No shushing? I, I mean, oh no, there was no there was no shushing. Just just some steely glances. <laughs> some Annabelle steely glances or whatever <laughs> Anastasia Steele. That's her Anastasia. Name. Annabelle's not a wacky enough name. That's, now, that's uh, yeah, see, I, I was on board. Like, the first line in the movie, essentially, was uh, this blonde woman just goes, are you sure you're going to be able to find the place? And uh, Anastasia Steele's like, I have a GPS and a 4.0 GPA. I think I can find it. And I was like, okay, I, I am on board right now. This is going to be goddamn brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and then... <laughs> I watched. I watched Steam real quick. It is like so. Fuck. Nothing happens in the entire goddamn movie. That's yeah, the worst and, structure ever. <laughs> and there's there's different ways it could have gone to be so much better because it's clearly conscious that the source material is silly. Uh, I mean, as silly as the movie is, they cut a lot of things out that were in the book, like um, uh, the the inner monologue, the inner goddess, I believe it's called in the book, which is just like. Oh yeah. I I don't know the you know the the protagonist her 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 inner voice that tells her sexy things uh, <laughs> i i heard it com- I, megan compared it to the the show lizzie mcguire you know when lizzie mcguire's cartoon <laughs> character self like pops up that's that's like anastasia seals inner goddess so they cut that out because that's just ridiculous and it would have been way too ridiculous for the movie so you either go one of two ways you either go whole hog on this is trash let's celebrate it and you just make a fucking hilarious movie that plays it straight. It would have been great. It would have been like a big budget, the room, more or less. And I would have loved that. I would have reveled in, in that. Um, the other way is you just take the main theme, which is like BDSM, weird-ass relationship, and you go like whole hog David Cronenberg with it and just go nuts. Uh, but this movie doesn't do either. It, it just sort of like hints at the idea that the source material is silly and stupid, but then it plays it straight and expects us to take them seriously, which you you absolutely can't. I mean, 30 minutes into the movie, there's a scene where uh, Anastasia is sitting in bed and Christian Grey saunters (laughs) over to her. I'm sauntering towards Steve right now. (laughs) And and she just says something like, oh, hey, and he's just like, I want to fuck you into next Tuesday. And then she's holding a piece of toast and he just bites her toast. (laughs) <laughs> so at this point like I'm on the ground like laughing I'm just like laying down on my feet like ah! <laughs> it's just like these these beautiful moments like that <laughs> or when he t- he takes her to meet his family at their big mansion and they're sitting at the dinner table <clears throat> and they're talking and, and they're like oh Anastasia where's your family from she's like oh they're from Georgia I'm actually going to visit them this weekend he's like what bitch what'd you say She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to meet them. And then they get up from, from the uh, dinner table, and they walk outside, and Christian Gray slings her over his shoulder, slaps her butt like a two-year-old, and she's like, why didn't you tell me you're going to, to Georgia? Blah, blah, blah. Like, she starts freaking out, and it gets like really American Psycho oh. weird. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like these, these movies have this, you know, in, in this sort of romantic uh, movie, like this, they're gonna have like a 
a late second act, early third act obstacle to overcome before they can find love. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this movie, that that is that moment right there. She's going to visit her mother in Georgia. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the, big that's the fucking that, that's the big obstacle. She's she's like, I'm gonna go visit my mother, and he's like, What the fuck? Whoa, whoa! Gonna, There's a line that fucking, just crossed it. You're gonna fucking visit your. You didn't tell me you were gonna fucking visit your mother. I'm like, what? what? Yeah, and, and then you expect him to chop her up into little pieces. And then it gets weird too because she goes to Georgia and she's just like, oh well, fuck Christian. He's kind of a dick for getting mad at me to, for visiting my mom. And you know, he, she, you know, they send text message or whatever, and, and she's very dismissive of him. And then they have this moment where she's sitting in a bar with her mom, drinking. And then she gets a text from Christian, and it just says, another cosmopolitan? And she's just no. like, what? And she turns around, and he's standing right there. So he just, like, stalked her literally across the country from oh my God. Washington to, <laughs> to Georgia. And she's not freaked out at all. Like, this is a perfectly normal thing. Like, oh, Christian, how are you? And then they just, like, everything is fine. And they, they ride in a fucking airplane together. Like a stunt airplane glider. That's the next big scene. Glider. That's that's in the book. That was a big romantic scene in the book. They just they're on a glider. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it never addresses the creepiness, but it doesn't make it campy enough either. And it's it's just it's so sad because there's so many dumb moments. Like after she meets Christian for the first time, and she's just like overwhelmed by his fucking throbbing cockatoo or whatever the fuck. His cockatoo. <laughs> his cockatoo. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is a combination of both cock and attitude. Uh, she walks outside and it just immediately starts pouring down rain. She's just like, oh, like reveling in it. If you I could mean, all be here in the studio, by the way, watching Steve reenact this, <laughs> you'd be in for a real treat. It is. I'm, I'm a master thespian. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, thank you for your subtlety, movie. We get it. She's wet. She's literally wet. Uh-huh. Ah, yeah. Ah, 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 ah. What? So I hadn't got it until just now. But, um, <laughs> what? <laughs> what like, I, I'm so baffled by so many things in this movie. Uh, what, like, what she wears to that first interview? She's dressed like, I don't know, a 65-year-old preschool teacher? Yeah, she looks like she works at, like, a local food co-op or something. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> I guess, like, I, I, I don't understand. I guess that they need to cast a mousy woman in this role, but this is not not an attractive woman to my eyes, i, I got to say. Well, I, I think, uh, like, the mousiness is, is way overdone. I think the wardrobe choice is a good point. And there's there's a line in the movie before she leaves where her roommate's like, you're wearing that? She's like, yeah. Yeah, of course I am. Of course. You're going to interview, like, a billionaire, and you're wearing... Yeah, like a preschool yeah. teacher clothes. It's, it's awful, and they just do everything to make this woman unattractive. It's so strange considering every male character is supposed to be attracted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and that's 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 part of the problem with the source material too, because she's such a one-dimensional character. She's a mousy woman who has never had sex before at the ripe old age of like twenty-four or something like that. Even though she's, I would say, by most accounts, you know, conventionally attractive and clearly goes out on dates, but she's like, hey, I have sex. No, I don't want to have sex. Yeah, is, she, is she religious? No, not religious, not religious. But no. then the moment she meets Christian Grey, who is just kind of a dick, and is basically like, I just want to, I just want to fuck you, and then just starts stalking her. That's what you need to do, you know. If you find a nice, innocent girl, you stalk her until you scare her into being your lover. That's that's what Fifty Shades teaches us, and that's all that she is is mousy and innocent. He is. 
well, I mean, we're supposed to believe that he's just billionaire playboy when, in fact, he's billionaire, like, sociopath murderer, clearly. Uh, that's more <laughs> his personality type. And the characters are so fucking boring that you can't do anything with them. There's no story arc. There's no, no development. It's just one dumb line after another, and nothing happens. You guys are sort of yeah. selling me on this, by the way. <laughs> I know, I right? You know. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, when I talk about it, I, I'm almost going to be like, go, go and see this, because it's so <laughs> fucking stupid. You can't even begin to imagine how inept it is. But well, then, if we get into the production a little, I think we can sell them off. But I, I'd say if you want to dive into the world of Fifty Shades, read the book. That is hilarious. It's yeah. probably the worst thing I've ever read, but it's at least it's wildly entertaining in its ineptitude. The movie is just fucking boring. So uh, I, I'd go book. Yeah, read the book. Um, yeah, it's uh, boy. I guess that the problem is the narrative structure issues really show through a lot worse than film because it certainly doesn't have anything resembling a three-act structure. And uh, and all the characters' sketches are, are just pure fairy tale, like written by a 10-year-old child who just, I don't know, saw Hellraiser and got titillated or something. Well, I mean, it, it started off as, as Twilight fan fiction. That's how the, that's how the book sure. was written. Yeah. Uh, and and that kind of it kind of shows through in the in the characters, but I, I think you oh for, drop my headphones make a good point here because I mean it, yeah it's it's like what if uh, an eight year old stumbled onto a copy of the Kaiba Sutra or something and then they wrote a, <laughs> a novel after having just finished the Twilight series that's what it that's what it reads like it, it's it's horrible. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I noted the base, like, it's, I mean, obviously you're going to note the Cinderella narrative sort of, you know, handsome prince bullshit that's subverted, wildly subverted with his uh, dark S&M tendencies. But there's also the Christ, Christian uh, Grace in Orphan who was abused and burned with a crack pipe and then adopted by rich philanthropists or something. Mm-hmm. There's oh. that secondary... Uh, Fairy tale narrative going on as well. Every character must have a great fairy tale story. Yeah, everything about Christian Grey points to serial killer. Uh, so he was an orphan from a, a crack mother who abused him. He was adopted by rich parents, and became a narcissistic pile of garbage. And then when he was 15 years old, according to the movie and I assume the book, um, yes. one of his mother's friends made him her like S and M fuck toy, but he was like totally cool with it. And then a few years later, he becomes the Christian Grey we all know and love. It's like, man, you got you got some issues, buddy. You should probably work through those. <laughs> so yeah. it's I, I don't know. He's it's just it's it's really weird. It's really weird. Yeah, a couple other notes I had on on the thing uh, would be the uh, the budget, forty million dollar movie, like thirty five million of which probably went to Danny Elfman's score. <laughs> <laughs> right, which which Danny Elfman didn't even write a score. It was just like this depressing, stripped-down version of his Edward Scissorhands theme, and uh, that that's one of my all-time favorite film scores. And, and to see it like in this, <laughs> it was yeah. uh, it was depressing. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, how much did they pay El? I guess maybe El got like. 30 mil. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if she consulted on the screenplay at all or anything like uh, that. I think she did, but there apparently there was a big battle between her and the director. Oh. Um especially about the ending. Um so I don't know if it's being fully endorsed by huh. the author. Well, the ending is awful. 
The ending is book book accurate, totally. Okay, book accurate ending. Oh, uh, it's it's a horrible oh. ending. I'm sorry, I think the director wanted a different ending, and then in the end, she won out, the author. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I will yeah, say the, the ending... right now that yeah, EL is, uh, is fighting hard for screenwriting uh, full control of, of movie number two. I say let her do it. Let her, let her go nuts. Because if, so. if she gets 100% control of, of the screenplay, and it's as batshit and dumb as the book is, and it embraces that dumbness, go for it. Uh, yeah, that's, that might be the only way to get me to buy another ticket is if all of a sudden EL is writing movies that I might mm-hmm. be like, okay, I, I gotta have to go see that. I think it's win-win too because then she, she can rope in her fans because they're like, oh, well now the author's writing it so it's okay that the first one was bad because now she's on board and they're, they're gonna think that it's gonna make it better when in fact it'll be a giant tire fire with even more dumb lines in it and it'll be great. Speaking of which, but, what is, what is the best like one-line zinger from this movie that is unintentionally hilarious. See, I think I've already laid mine out. The opening line is. Fine. You think the opening line? Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna go with. Oh, there's there's so many, so many gems. I'm gonna have to go with when they're having the big discussion about why he won't open up to her and why he's such a dickhead, and he just says, "I'm Fifty Shades of Fucked Up." Like that is the best line ever written in the history of cinema. Is that like the titular line? That is that is the titular line. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's also a book line, definitely. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk about that that ending a bit. Uh, that was one of my last two notes here. Mm-hmm. Would be that ending where uh, Anastasia tells him to uh, show her how bad this bondage lifestyle can get. Oh yeah, uh, she wants to know what happens when when she disobeys. Right, how bad could this get? Yeah. Uh, at, at which point he he squats her ass six times and mm-hmm. calls him a monster and storms out. Yeah. Like like if you're if you're asking like the Marquis decide how bad bondage can get, don't you expect like a fucking gerbil up your ass and your back <laughs> looks like looks like the fucking passion of the Christ or something? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking too. I mean, yeah, he paddles her buns or whatever, but I mean, really, if you think about it, how bad can it get? You've experienced it up to this point. Like, aside from your lovemaking, think of all the the weird psychological shit that he's done to you. Think of the stalking. Think of just the lack of consent on your part. All these things that he's done to you. He broke into your house after you told him, I don't want to see you anymore, and then he banged you. Like what? That, that's no, not that okay. She just doesn't want to deal with physical pain. Uh, yeah, rest is a okay. Yeah, um, the rest is fine. And then, and then I guess like the whole idea was then she storms out, and it kind of it kind of bookends the elevator scene from the beginning where she falls in love with him, uh, with you know the end where she's apparently leaving. Um, but it, let's say for for someone like me who didn't read the book. That doesn't tell me anything. You didn't. You didn't tell a story. There's no story here. Nothing happens. Like it's clearly a cliffhanger for the next two, three, ten, whatever, however many movies they make. But it's horrible. There's there's just no there's no finish at all. See, I thought it was kind of ballsy in the book. Like, but only if I had no idea it was a series. Like, if it was a standalone book, I'd have been like, oh, that was a pretty ballsy ending. But knowing there were two more, I was like, okay, fuck you. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's almost like some sort of anti-abuse statement if it were taking uh, taken on its own. But it's it can't be. It's, it's 
Yeah, in the context of the movie, it's a fucking train wreck. Yeah, right. it's 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 pretty bad. And to just give you an idea, the one thing that really shows how inept this screenplay is and how inept everyone involved is with this movie, there's a point where Christian Grey is trying to win over uh, Anastasia, so he sends her a bunch of uh, first edition books, one of which is the Iliad, a first edition <laughs> Iliad. And that's the level of stupidity on display here. So, do you have any do you have any closing words? Anything else you want to say on Fifty Shades here, Myros? I I I don't know if closing. I still have a little bit more here. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the direction, like. Uh, oh yeah, how it looks. Yeah, let's let's talk about has, that before we. Yeah, we, it has know. a, a severe oral fixation, obviously, <laughs> which which it shares with the both the oral fixation factor. Uh, mm-hmm. Just sucking on pencils. That, why the hell does Christian Grey have monogrammed wooden pencils that he? <laughs> He does. That's like the only thing on his desk. He's got this really like, like uh, modern like, in both in his home and his office, just like really bleak gray, you know, decor and whatever. I guess that fits with the character. But yeah, then the only thing on his desk is just like eight monogrammed fucking number two pencils. Who yeah, wouldn't he have like a fucking nice pen or something about like a goddamn ten cent pencil name on it? I don't know. Uh, I don't know why he would do that. Yeah, I. That's the the whole film just lacked style. So, but like it felt like it was just filmed at a fucking Marriott. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it does. It, it, there was no opulence to Christian Grey's uh, quarters or anything like that. Like it, it didn't feel like the residence of some wildly wealthy eccentric billionaire or something. No, it, it just it looked like a goddamn hotel. It does. That's, that's exactly what it looked like. Yeah, that, that, this weird choice is like again the forty million dollar thing just baffles me because it's clearly not filmed in Seattle. It's just a few flyovers, mm-hmm. uh, and if you look it up, it was indeed filmed in Vancouver. And one of the biggest like gaps I've ever seen in a Hollywood film to me is is that Anastasia Steele is uh, is in school in Portland. I I don't know that they ever mentioned what school she's attending. I I don't know if they did with the book either. It's been too long, but they. Christian Grey speaks at her uh, commencement, and uh, there's a big banner that says, Washington State University, Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Why would, they're in Portland, it's not Washington State University, Vancouver. That doesn't doesn't make any sense. That's where they feel, F you. Uh, Yeah, I, I guess that, Beyond that, I I just kind of wanted to to toss it out to you. Do you have I have something in mind, but I maybe I should have bounced it off you. But let's go mm-hmm. further. Um, do you have someone who you think like you have an idealized version of this movie, like a director you've handed to? An idealized uh, version. I I think well, kind of going back to earlier in our conversation about it. Uh, there's two people you give this movie to, and I'm behind it 110. percent One is Tommy Wiseau, uh, with E. L. James writing the entire screenplay. And two is David Cronenberg with 100% creative control, allowed to do whatever the hell he wants, write the script, go crazy. Those those are my two people. See, I have a I have a comedic choice and a serious choice, but the comedic choice is just an actor. Like, I, I couldn't stop picturing uh, British comedian Matt Berry uh, <laughs> as Christian Grey. I think that would be the most <laughs> thing to ever happen ever. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> well, a stylistic choice would be why the fuck did this movie not have more penis? Like, we need 
four yeah, feet. Yeah, there's no planet. cock. It is cockless. There's like a brief moment where you see like the you see like the cock bush meeting point there, like you yeah, see the bush very, very top the elephant's face begins. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> this movie this movie has a severe male gaze for uh, a movie that's female driven and geared. Like it, it's totally. It's, yeah, it's, if, if I didn't know any better, I would say it was directed by a man because it's it's super male gaze heavy. Like, right, and it doesn't it's, have it's like, like zooming in on her tits like every three seconds. It's it's crazy. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, my I, I had talked to someone who, who I went to see it with, and she said that, oh yeah, it's, you know, a lot of that has to do with the thrill of objectification that's inherent in the sub mentality, and that's fine. But it doesn't like have that artistry to it where there's not like Hammer angles establishing Christian as like towering over her or something. Yeah, like yeah, it's it's just kind of it's just kind of skeezy. Um, right, it looks, it's, it looks it's like weird. Looking, it looks like Cinemax. You know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Although most of those, sadly, you could pop in uh, at one a.m. on Cinemax and see a, a better piece of erotica almost. Yeah. Well, and certainly uh, better film the one. The lighting would at least be a little bit right, better. and plot wise <laughs> too. I mean, not. The, I guarantee that 90% of those have a plot that makes more sense and is more driven than uh, yeah. Yeah, than Fifty Shades. I, I would rather I watch a marathon of the Red Shoe Diaries than watch Fifty Shades of Grey again. <laughs> yeah, very fair. Uh, I guess my my ideal choice to direct Fifty Shades of Grey would be Pedro Almodovar. Oh, that'd be fun. Like that'd imagine the yeah, with his telenovela like trash sensibilities and his use of color. Like imagine the the red room actually popping. Yeah, and uh, that'd be nice. Uh, the vibrancy that that could be in such a film. And yeah. it, you know, since they had forty million dollars, you think they could have hired someone? Now, why would they do that, Myros? Why would they actually hire someone competent? No, I don't think they should have. I think they should have hired no one and spent like. One million dollars. Yeah, this is a movie that could have been made for fifteen million or less. It seems like. Like yeah, why did they spend this money? They they it's the only reason it made any money is because it's a bankable asset, and they could have put any amount of money they wanted into it, and it would have made the same exact amount of money. Yeah, and apparently it would have been the same quality. I don't know what the fuck they used this money on. Yeah, the only the only like stylish point in the entire movie is um well there's there's one where they try and be stylish and that's where he's playing the piano like a sad somber sack of oh, shit Jesus Christ and then she like walks in but it's like such a poorly composed shot that it's 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 comical it's it's like watching a student film and you just you're cringing um the one the one stylish scene i think is where they're having like the contract negotiation in his contract signing room which is like inexplicably pitch black with like strange orange lighting silhouetting everyone. Uh, but it's funny because <laughs> they try and make it all stylish and kind of sexy, but it's it's like the least sexy and most boring sequence of any movie ever. Like, what what kind of sexual negotiation is that where you literally have a contract in front of you and you're going, like, point by point, and she's just like, butt plugs. I don't think we can do butt plugs. <laughs> that's no, that's just... an actual... And it goes on and on and on, and it's so comical. It's just like, oh, my God, could you make this any worse? It's not, a, it's not like, a, a negotiation between two people trying to figure out, like, what they want to, to be happy in this weird relationship they have. It's just... It's, it's fucking horrible. Oh, God, that... that... That's just the, the another thing that just makes no sense about this character in both book and movie. Mm-hmm. She's a virgin, yet apparently is. If you have that level of like 
physical response to sexual stimulation, you're not a virgin at 25. Yeah, you're I, a virgin of like you're a virgin of like 14. It's, it's <laughs> like oh, you, you just like touch your, your chest or something. It's like, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that's that's basically what happens. Like he just like he he like pokes her in the the, the, the belly button and she just like spasms. <laughs> it's horrible. And yeah, so, at the same so time, like, she has, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and I mean, people exist like that who are overly sensitive to sexual stimulation. That's fine and well. Certainly, they exist in the world, and, and those are the people who are pregnant at 15, generally. But uh, beyond that, beyond that, these people are also uh, are, are also aware of what a butt plug is. They're not like 25 and like. What? What exactly? That's a lot When they're they're negotiating, I believe she, you know, she says no to anal fisting and any fisting, like right off the bat, off the table. But then she goes down. She's like, "Uh, "Yes, item one fourteen B, butt plugs. What's a butt plug? It is in the name. It is literally a plug for your butt. What else could that possibly be? I have never seen a butt plug. I have never held a butt plug in my hand, nor have I used one. And yet, I think I have a pretty good idea of what a butt plug is." I think I did it like age 13. You used a butt plug when you were 13? No, I knew what it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's pretty. It, that's what it is. It's like a middle school insult. Like if I, I probably called someone a butt plug when I was 12. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 asinine. All right, so Fifty Shades final verdict. Eh, don't see it. If it's if it pops up on Netflix and you hate yourself. Just uh, watch it and kind of fast forward through it, and uh, you know, stick around for some of the, the one line zingers. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd read the book. It's uh, it's horrible, but in a good way, as opposed to the movie, which is horrible in the worst possible way. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps things up for this week. So, Myros, what are you putting over? Well, I was going to put it over last cast, but I got distracted by television. So I'm I'm going with John Carpenter's Lost Team. Good choice. I almost put that over last week too. Yeah, it, it's it's really awesome. And it doesn't even a lot of it doesn't even sound like Carpenter. It's got a real goblin like Keith Emerson. He he like kind of embodies that whole era of film scores in in one album. Yeah, that, no, that's uh, what I really like about it is it doesn't just sound like. I mean, there's a couple tracks on there where it's clearly you know it seems like stripped right out of a John Carpenter movie. But I think it does a good job of yeah, kind of embodying the soundtracks to horror movies in the 70s and 80s in, in one album. Yeah. I found it to be ideal, like walking around the city at night music. Right? Mm-hmm. No, it's, yeah, that's great choice, good choice. Steve, what are you putting over? I'm going to go ahead and put over uh, Get Even, the uh, seminal John DeHart film. Yes! I got, yeah, I got Steve <laughs> to watch Get Even. Yeah. Get Even. That's, that's like the official movie of Optimism Vaccine. Like, that's, that's it. If you want to know what Optimism Vaccine is about... You go find yourself. I think it's on YouTube, you said? Yep. Go on YouTube. Look up the movie Get Even by John DeHart. One word. One word. One word. Road to Revenge <laughs> is also the uh, subtitle. Yeah. Should I, should I tell my Get Even, my, my John DeHart story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the question is, is which version is online? Is it the director's cut? <laughs> I believe it is the most recent director's cut. Okay, that's that's good. That's good. Obviously, you know. Uh, so, I we, me and Myros heard about Get Even, or I, I think... Maybe we both heard about it at the same time, or I heard about it. But there's this this torrent site that's dedicated specifically to like out of print horror exploitation, just weird dog shit. And uh, they had a thread on one of their forums where you could dare someone to watch a movie that was so horrible that it's like difficult to get through. And so I started downloading some of them just to because I don't know I'm a masochist or something. Uh, <laughs> 
And one of them was Get Even. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but it was just like, this is transcendent. It's so, like, <laughs> inept in every way, shape, and form, but it's the perfect kind. It's, it's like a Troll 2 or The Room where it's completely inept, but the director, who's also the star, who also does the music, who also <laughs> wrote it, who also produced it, thinks that he's Stanley fucking Kubrick, which is the perfect combination. If you want so bad it's good, you cannot be conscious of the fact that you're making a bad movie. You have to, like, think that you're a fucking genius. So I buy it on DVD, and I love it and I cherish it. And then when I moved from California to Milwaukee, one of my boxes with some movies and video games and stuff in it uh, got lost, and I was heartbroken. So I was like, i got to buy Get Even again. I try to go to John DeHart's official website. You can't, you can't buy the movie on there anymore. I go to Amazon. It's completely out of stock. As of right now, there's two copies used on Amazon for $99. <laughs> Tough thing to come by. And I'm like, this is horrible. So I Google John DeHart. Turns out his movie career didn't pan out. Who would have thunk? <laughs> He's a lawyer in Los Angeles. I called his law office, which was... I think just his house, because he answered. <laughs> and I started talking to him, and I was just like, yeah, I can't buy your movie. Can I get a copy of your movie? <laughs> and I gave him this, he's like, yeah, why do you want it? And I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a grad student, and I want to watch it for grad school and stuff and things. And then this turned into like an hour-long conversation where he told me, he's just like, oh, it's, it's it's totally underrated. Like, people just don't get it. They don't understand the genius at work here. And I think part of it was because uh, Wings Hauser was drunk the whole time, which after learning that, you watch the movie, you're like, oh, yeah, he's definitely oh, yeah. drunk the whole time. <laughs> oh, and he yeah. just, like, was talking shit about Wings Hauser. And then, and this is the scariest part, he's just like, yeah, I really want to do another DVD release. I've been editing it ever since, you know, the first cut came out because I wasn't ha happy with it. Keep in mind, this movie came out in, like, 1990-fucking-three. So for, like, a solid 20 years, he has been editing Get Even <laughs> to obtain the perfect master cut of the movie. <laughs> so finally, he, he goes, okay, well, just, um, you know, give me your address. So I gave him my address, and he sent me a, uh, a package with a handwritten note and the most recent cut <laughs> Get even on a burned DVD. <laughs> so I have my my special edition of this movie. It's it's fucking amazing. I love John DeHart so much, <laughs> so much. He's an ego maniacal psycho, and he makes incredible art. <laughs> Let him do Fifty Shades. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'd be down with that. Steve, what, what what was your experience with Get Even? Like, was did it live up to the hype? Uh, Lord knows, I hype it. It more than lived up to the hype, actually, and I uh, saw I saw it for the first time about a year ago at Steve's apartment, and I uh, recently showed it to some friends of mine in Minneapolis, and uh, they've already said that they put that in their like top five, like it's a pinnacle film after just seeing it once. Yeah, um, classic. And I'm actually hoping to get a screening for it in Minneapolis sometime oh in the next god. year. And what so. if John DeHart came? Oh my god! That's fucking kind of what I'm hoping. I would die if, if I could at least get him to do like a pre-recorded message or something. Yeah. So. Oh, he would totally do it. He's he's absolutely in love with himself. So I guarantee he would do it. <laughs> John, if you're out there listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Just do the shimmy in the slide. You'll be fine. Do the shimmy slide. That's the best. There's this scene. Okay, we gotta talk about this real quick. Then I'm gonna shut up about this fucking movie. There's this scene in Get Even where they're at this like cowboy karaoke bar, 
which is clearly just someone's living room that they're <laughs> pretending is a bar. And there's like a country band playing, and John DeHart's with this supermodel who clearly would never give him the time of day in real life. And she's just like, oh, John, go up there and, and sing your song that you sing, you know, that one. And he's just like, oh, I don't know. She's like, oh, come on. So he goes up on stage. <laughs> he looks he like he shat his pants. Yeah, he, he's just got <laughs> these dead eyes, and he can barely move. Like, he's got these, like, stiff robotic dance moves. And he's... And he just sings this. You can look it up if, if you go on it's YouTube. It's on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, just look up the shimmy slide. It'll come up. And the part that they don't show you on YouTube is when he's in the middle of this horrible song, because he can't sing, he can't dance, and he looks like he shit himself, um, this woman inexplicably comes up on stage and takes her top off, <laughs> and she has the most comical, fake 80s breasts I have ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> like, if, if, if you, like, took balloons and you shoved them underneath a T-shirt... <laughs> That's what it looks like, but but they're real, and then it, it just out of nowhere, just naked, just and then just dancing on stage. <laughs> it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> this is this is the pinnacle of cinema, ladies and gentlemen. Get even is the pinnacle of cinema. <laughs> okay, enough about that. Uh, I'm putting over this week a video game. It's called Darkest Dungeon, and it is a turn-based RPG dungeon crawler thing, which doesn't make it sound very interesting. But the cool thing about this game is in most video games, you kind of have to buy in that there's some, you know, weird video game world bullshit that you're dealing with. So when you play Doom, you're, uh, you know, you're a space marine and you've got nine weapons in your back pocket, and you're just like, okay, that's that's normal, even though that could never actually happen. Sure. The other thing that video games do that are kind of weird is, you, you know, you, you go around basically committing genocide in a lot of games, <laughs> but you never really have to deal with the consequences of it. So in Darkest Dungeon, your characters actually start to lose their shit. Like as you as you go through these dungeons, they they have like a stress meter that goes up, and at some point they can just like break down. Like they'll stop healing because they're just like, no, I want to die. This sucks. Oh. <laughs> and they they just have to deal with it, or they'll go crazy and they'll start you know attacking your guys because they're like, fuck you guys, why are we here? This sucks. So you have to not only play through the game and deal with monsters and stuff like that, but you have to deal with the mental state of your characters. And then when you get back, instead of wiping it all away, you actually have to like figure out a way to medicate them. So, you you know, you can take them to the brothel and give them a good time so they kind of forget about things. Or, you know, there's all these different things that you can do. So you have to kind of balance um, pushing your characters and fighting monsters with dealing with their mental well-being, which is a really so interesting like, thing. It's like the American Sniper of uh, Dungeon Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> no, in American Sniper, you, you actually you, you don't deal with your, with your PTSD. Oh, oh. Yeah, the, the trick is American good. Sniper, you just you come home after five tours of Iraq and you're like, okay, I'm better. You just, you just wake up and make that decision. That's what I learned. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, with that, I guess we're going to say our farewell here. Um, this will be up on Monday, and then we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. And, hey, we got great content coming to Shepherd Express. You can see that on ExpressMilwaukee.com. And, of course, as always, on OptimismVaccine.com or at our Twitter account, at OptimismVaccine. Steve, last word is yours, as always. Let her rip. Let her rip.